Well, one of the fun things that I got to learn about Julie, my wife, when we were dating, is that Julie loves infomercials. When, when I tell you that Julie loves infomercials, I mean Julie really loves infomercials. On Saturday afternoons, you can pick either college football or infomercials. Julie never picks football. She, she, she loves everything about infomercials. You've you got a whole group of people who are happy, they're excited, and there's no plot complications. There's, there's no stress. There's, there's no scariness. That's a perfect show for Julie. Um, now, I myself am, am not a fan of infomercials. The lack of plot and the bunch of people you paid to be happy, that's not really my cup of tea. But there's always a moment in every infomercial that makes me laugh. It's that moment when they go over the top in proving the value of their product to you. It's that moment when the, the chef, he pulls out those knives that are always sharp and he proceeds to cut open a, an aluminum can. Or, or the guy takes a vacuum cleaner and he picks up a bowling ball with it. Or they, they super glue a construction worker by his helmet to the underside of a steel beam. And I'm laughing because I'm thinking, okay, who of us is really going to do that? Who of us is going to buy that product? And who, who of us is going to go buy some kitchen knives and cut aluminum cans with them? Who of us is going to super glue ourselves to the side of a building? Who of us, when we buy a vacuum cleaner, is thinking, gee whiz, I hope it can pick up a bowling ball because I've got a lot of those lying around the house. They, they, they slip into absurdity, yet I've got to hand it to them. That's actually really good marketing. That's a, a really smart marketing technique that those infomercials are using. They are demonstrating to us the, the value and the validity of their product by showing that they work in the worst case scenarios. If those knives can cut it in an aluminum can, they can probably cut my tomato. Probably work for me. If that vacuum can pick up a bowling ball, then it can probably pick up the dust around my house. It proves the validity of the product by showing its success in the worst imaginable scenario. Well, Paul is actually going to apply that exact same logic to the product that he is promoting in the book of Galatians, the one true gospel. Let me review with you for a moment from last week. What is the gospel that Paul is proclaiming in the book of Galatians? Well, it is the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, and you are saved if you simply believe it. Remember, I challenged you guys last week to to memorize this so that you can share the basic points of the gospel in 30 seconds. I I want you to have that memorized so that you're ready to share, not so that it straightjackets you, so you always have to say these words, but I want you to memorize them so you're confident. So when you get in front of someone else, you know the basic truths that you need to get across. This is Paul's gospel of grace, that we're not saved by works, we're not saved by our merit or our efforts, but by the grace of God through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this gospel is coming under attack, isn't it? These false teachers have infiltrated the churches that Paul planted in the regions of Galatia. These are Jewish believers who are proclaiming that Paul's gospel is not enough. Hey, this is a great first step. It's good to begin with faith in Jesus, but that's not enough. If you want to be saved, you've got to follow it up with obedience to the Jewish law. So Paul takes the whole book of Galatians to prove the truth of his gospel, to to show us that his gospel is from God, that it carries with it the power of God, that it is sufficient to save us completely. Now Paul is going to reemphasize that point at the beginning of our passage this morning. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. 
Last week we studied the first 10 verses. This week we're going to study a whole bunch more. Huge passage this morning. We're just going to take excerpts from it. We're going to start in verse 10 of chapter 1 where Paul makes his big point. Here's the big point he's trying to get across. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 1. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to understand the gospel of grace. This gospel right here, it's not given by human beings. It was given by God himself. It is therefore completely true and infinitely powerful. But here's the question. How do we know that Paul was right? There's a lot of other opinions out there in our world. There's a whole lot of other gospels out there claiming to be able to make us right with God. How do we know that this one is right? How do we know that we're correct? How do we know that the gospel of grace is true? Well, that's the rest of the passage this morning from verse 13 all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. Paul is going to prove to us the truthfulness and the power of the gospel of grace by putting in front of us the worst case scenario. He's gonna offer up for our consideration the worst possible sinner turned saint he can find and that's himself. Paul doesn't have to go far to find a worst case scenario. Paul was the worst sinner imaginable. We're gonna look at that in a moment. Paul was an incredible sinner. He was an incredible enemy of Jesus Christ and of Christ's church. But through the gospel, Paul was not only saved, he was transformed. He became the foremost preacher of the gospel, an advocate of the church. He was radically transformed. And Paul offers up his own life. Hey, if the gospel can work for me, then it can work for you. If the gospel can work for me, the worst of sinners, then it's got to be true. It's got to be from God. There's no other way to explain what happened in Paul's life unless the gospel really is true. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Paul offers us his testimony. That's basically our passage this morning. Verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 10 is Paul's testimony, the story of God's grace at work in his life. Paul wants us to look at him. He's saying, my message is proven by my life. When you see what God has done in my life, you will know that the gospel is true. So let's look at that. We're going to look at a few different aspects of Paul's life. Where he starts with us is he wants us to understand that the the truth and the power of the gospel of grace was demonstrated first when God saved Paul, the worst of sinners. Let's look at the early days of Paul's life. Paul before he encountered Jesus Christ. Paul before the gospel. Look with me starting in verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul is revealing to us that the characteristic of his life before the gospels, he was a relentless enemy of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's interesting the words in Greek that are used in this verse, how I used to persecute the church. Persecute is in what we call the imperfect tense. It describes something that didn't happen like once or twice, but happened all the time. Paul was always persecuting the church. This was the normal characteristic of his life. He goes on and says that he tried to destroy the church of God. That's a word that means to to pillage, to annihilate. It was used of soldiers who would go in and ravage and burn a city. Again, it's an imperfect tense. He was constantly doing this. The characteristic of Paul's life was he was seeking to destroy the church. 
I want to read to you, you don't have to turn there, from Acts 26. It's a parallel account of Paul's testimony. He is sharing his story with Roman rulers. And listen to what Paul says in chapter 26. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. He was complicit in their murder. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. It's really significant. In that account, Paul gives us his motive. He didn't persecute them out of duty. He didn't track down and hunt Christians because it was his job. He did it because he was furiously enraged at them. Paul hated Christians. Paul hated the church. So he arrested and put to death every Christian he could find. Look again at Galatians, next verse, verse 14. He continues to describe his life before the gospel. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul tells us the second aspect of his life before the gospel was he was a poster child of religious sin. Paul committed religious sin all the time. What was he pursuing? Well, he wasn't advancing in relationship with God. He wasn't advancing in love for others. What was he advancing in? Religion, Judaism. He was advancing in the practice of religion. Why was he doing so? Why was he advancing in Judaism? Not to please God, but to look good in front of others so that he might excel beyond all his countrymen. For Paul, before the gospel, religion was about competition. He wanted to show himself more religious than anyone else. In other words, Paul was guilty of religious sin, the sins of pride and of self-righteousness. Now, to a lot of us, when we hear sins like that, pride and self-righteousness, we think, well, that's, that's not really that big a sin. Surely that's not as bad as immorality or adultery or thievery, is it? Well, remember who Jesus went after when he came to earth. Who did Jesus go after? Was it the prostitutes? No. Was it the thieving tax collectors? No, he was friends with them. Who did Jesus go after? The Pharisees like Paul. Those who committed religious sins. We need to realize in God's eyes, there's no sin bigger than religious sin. Pride and self-righteousness, that's as bad as it gets in God's eyes. Paul's telling us, in comparison to everyone else, Paul is the worst sinner of all. He was a fierce enemy of the church of Jesus Christ, and he was a poster child of religious sin. So we look at Paul's life, and it's pretty easy to conclude, well, here's a guy who was beyond hope. You know, if I was alive in Paul's days, if I was a believer when Paul was around... I wouldn't go share the gospel with Paul. I would run from Paul. I would have written Paul off as a lost cause. If anyone was beyond the hope of the gospel, it was Paul. But what Paul's testimony proves to us is that no one is beyond the reach of the gospel of grace. Look with me at verse 15. Paul says, but when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son 
and me. What Paul is talking about is a moment in time when God revealed to him the truth of the gospel of grace. I would assume most of you know that story. Paul, while he was still called Saul, that's the name he went by in his earlier days, he was traveling to the city of Damascus to arrest and persecute more Christians. And while on the road, God shows up to him in this incredibly bright light and Paul falls to his knees and he hears a voice cry from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul looks up and he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice from heaven proclaims, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in an instant, Paul realizes, oh no, I was on the wrong side of this. In an instant, he realizes Jesus wasn't lying when he said he was the son of God. He wasn't lying when he said he was the Messiah here to die for sins. Jesus died for Paul's sins and rose from the dead. Paul realizes it's true and in that instant, the worst of sinners is saved. The worst of sinners is given by God eternal life. What that does for us is it proves to us the truth of the gospel. How do we know that the gospel is true? Because the gospel can save a guy like Paul. The gospel isn't just for a subset of the world's population. It's not just for the best of us. The gospel is for even the worst sinner, even the vilest person on earth can be saved by the gospel. That's why we know it's the power of God. Osama bin Laden himself is not beyond the power of God's grace. That's how we know it's true. It's not just for the best people. It's for the worst people imaginable. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. I want to ask you this morning to kind of Really think honestly with yourself. Do you believe that that's true? You're hearing that it's true, but do you believe it? You really believe that there is no person on earth that's beyond the reach of the gospel. Now, as some of you in this room, you may struggle that, to believe that for yourself. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never accepted the gospel because you, you just assume, man, it can't apply to you. You've sinned so bad. You've done things that are so shameful. You've hurt people so badly. Surely God can't save you. It just can't be true that he would forgive you simply by grace. No way. Well, you need to realize if God can save a man like Paul, he can save a person like you. You are not as bad as Paul was. If God can save Paul, then he can save you. What you need to realize is that God is right now handing down to you the free gift of salvation and all you have to do is simply receive it. All you have to do is simply say, God, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Yes, me, a horrible sinner. He died for me and rose from the dead. Just believe it. The gospel's for you. Gospel's for everyone. The rest of us, we need to realize there's no one in our lives that is beyond the reach of the gospel. That means that that family member who is so hostile to your faith, they're not beyond the reach of the gospel. That coworker who is always a jerk to you, not beyond the reach of the gospel. The guy down the hall in your dorm who's always sleeping around, not beyond the reach of the gospel. If the gospel works for Paul, it can work for anyone. So we need to quit giving up on people. We need to quit writing people off as beyond hope. Keep loving people. Keep sharing the gospel with people. Keep praying for people because as long as they're breathing, they're not beyond the reach of the gospel. That's the first way we know the gospel's true because it could save a man like Paul. The vilest of sinners. 
But Paul's not yet done proving to us the truthfulness and the power of God's gospel of grace. He goes on and he looks at another aspect of his life. He wants us to see that the power of God's grace is demonstrated in Paul's calling as an apostle. The truth of God's grace is proven when God chose the unworthiest, the unlikeliest of apostles. I thought I'd share with you guys this morning a little, little embarrassing thing from my life. When I was in fifth and sixth grade, um, I was the second shortest boy in my, in my grade. Not like in my class. I mean, in my whole grade, second shortest boy. I was real small. I had absolutely no athletic ability. I couldn't get a basketball anywhere near the hoop. Uh, I, I couldn't throw a spiral to save my life. I didn't play catch with, with baseballs because I was really scared of them. I, I would hit the deck if you threw a baseball at me. Uh, I remember this one Saturday, my dad was trying to help me to learn to throw a football. Not like the real footballs, but like the kid football. So he takes me and my best friend, who is a year younger than me, takes us out to the backyard, and all three of us are standing about 20 feet apart. And, and my best friend, who again is, is a year younger than me, he throws a perfect spiral to my dad. And my dad throws a perfect spiral to me, which, of course, I drop. And then I I pick up this little ball, and and, and I bring it back behind my ear, and I throw it with all my might, end over end, five feet in front of me. I threw a brick. That's as far as I could get. So like any cool, confident fifth grader, uh, I cried and ran to my room. (laughs) Because I knew I, I had no athletic ability. The point that I'm making is if we were at recess together and we were picking teams for any kind of sport, I would be the last guy picked. I was always the last guy picked. Um, in fact, if there were an odd number of people, I just wasn't picked. I was, you know, off on, on the swing set. Now, what, what's really funny to me is Brian and I, you know, we kind of prepare our sermons separately and then we compare them. Well, we realize that just by God's working, we both have the same illustration in our sermon. Only difference is I'm the guy who never got picked. Brian's the guy who never picked me. Brian was the, the team <laughs> captain. Brian's... A little taller than me, a little more naturally athletic. He's a guy who would have never picked me, but I got to be honest, I couldn't blame him. I can't blame the, the, those team captains for not picking me. I wasn't worthy to be on your team. I, it's pretty much a guarantee that you were going to lose because I, I just couldn't play sports. I didn't have it in me. I was an unworthy pick. Well, that same sad reality, I'm okay now, just so you guys, if you're wondering. <laughs> this isn't a sore spot for me anymore. It was for a while, but I'm good now. Well, that same sad reality was true of Paul. Paul was an incredibly unworthy pick for a far more important team. Not an athletic team, but a team that the New Testament calls apostles. The word apostle means a messenger or envoy. And in the New Testament, it becomes the title for an elite group of men who are God's messengers to his church. They deliver God's words, God's revelation to the church. All of these men had three things in common. They'd seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. They were commissioned as apostles by Jesus himself. They weren't appointed by elders or a committee. They were appointed by Jesus. And they could do works of miracles. They could all do miraculous things. And they had a very significant job. In fact, the most significant job of any human being other than Jesus Christ. These men laid the foundation for the church. Through their teachings and through their writings, like our New Testament, they laid the foundation that every church stands upon. So it's a pretty significant job, isn't it? Pretty big thing to be an apostle. So let me ask, who are you going to pick to be on your team of apostles? Well, if it's me doing the picking, I'm going to pick someone who was, uh, who was part of our team the whole time. He was with Jesus the whole time. He was part of Jesus's, Jesus's group. And I'm going to pick someone who is loyal, who's proven loyal and faithful to God. And I'm going to pick someone who's got a great reputation in the church. In other words, the last guy I'm going to pick is Paul. I'm never going to pick Paul. 
Paul was on the other team. In fact, he was like captain of the other team trying to kill us. Paul had a horrible reputation of the, in the church. Paul's the unlikeliest man you would ever choose to be the leader of your church, and yet that's exactly who God picks. Look with me at chapter two, starting in verse seven. Chapter two, verse seven. Paul says, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked in me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. In other words, what's the basis of Paul's calling as an apostle? Well, he tells you in verse 9. It's not his merit. It's not his worthiness. It's not his qualifications. It's what? The grace of God. It's the grace of God that chose this unworthy man to become one of the greatest leaders in the history of the church. Grace that was actually shown in Paul's life from birth. Look back. Remember what we read in verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb... The really cool thing about God's grace is that God knew he was going to choose Paul to be an apostle. So God started working in Paul's life behind the scenes, preparing Paul to be this apostle from the day Paul was born. Even when Paul was hostile to God, God was at work. Paul's a really interesting and unique individual. He was born in a Jewish family and and received an elite Jewish education, one of the best Jewish educations you could get back then. Yet at the same time, he was also a Roman citizen. That was really rare. He could travel all around the world unhindered. He could go talk to governors and emperors. In addition, he was exposed and taught up in Greek philosophy and literature. This man had all these incredible traits that God was orchestrating so that when God called Paul to be an apostle, Paul would be the perfect pick. In our eyes, he is an unworthy candidate. In God's eyes, he's the perfect pick because God had been at work in his life from day one. What's just incredible to me to think about, God was working in Paul's life to prepare Paul to be an apostle at the same time that Paul was fighting against God's church. That same span of years when Paul's killing every Christian he can find, God is still orchestrating all the pieces of Paul's life to make him the perfect servant to become an apostle. The grace of God is magnificent. It's incredible. He chose the most unworthy man to make him the greatest of the apostles, the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle who brought us the gospel. Now, why did God do that? Turn to 1 Timothy, short direction to the right in your Bible, 1 Timothy. Why did God choose an unworthy man? Look with me at 1 Timothy, starting in verse 15. Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, Paul says, God chose me to be an apostle, the worst of all sinners, so that through me, God might shown to be awesome. 
God might be proven to be gracious and merciful and patient and worthy of worship because he picked someone so unworthy to do great things through. Think about it. If God chose only awesome people to serve in his church, then when the church grows and the church expands, where would all the praise go? To those awesome people because, hey, they did a good job. But if God instead chooses broken and unworthy and unlikely servants to lead his church, then when the church grows and expands, where does the praise go? To God. It all goes back to God because we can't say it was about Paul. We can't say Paul did a great job. No, he was the most unworthy choice imaginable. God did a great job. He used the most unlikely servant to turn the world upside down. When I was growing up, my dad used to love to tell me that God can hit a home run with a crooked stick. Now, that statement is true, but I would change the verb. It's not can, it's loves. God loves to hit a home run with a crooked stick. Because when we do, we know it's not the quality of the bat, it's the quality of the batter. When God does extraordinary things through unworthy people, it shows us how great God is. The praise doesn't come back to us, it all goes up to God. It shows us the grace of God is incredible, it is powerful, it is real, it is authentic. The grace of God found in the gospel is the real deal because it can take a man as unworthy as Paul and transform him into this apostle who turned the world upside down, who planted churches throughout the Roman Empire, who spoke in front of governors and emperors, who wrote most of the New Testament, that God could use a man like Paul is proof of the power of the gospel. There is no way to explain what Paul accomplished apart from the supernatural grace of God. Can't explain it in human terms. There's no way that the fiercest enemy of the church becomes this greatest apostle unless God's grace was supernaturally at work in his life. What Paul is showing us in the course of his life is that God loves to use broken and unworthy people to do great things. That's what God loves to do because then all the praise goes to him. Then the world sees that the gospel is real. He loves to do great things through broken and unworthy people. But let me ask you, do you believe that? Let me make it more personal for you. Do you believe that God wants to use you to do great things for his kingdom? Maybe that's hard for you to believe because you look at yourself and you think, well, I'm kind of a new believer. I'm not that far along in my Christian walk. I don't think God wants to do that greatest stuff with me. Or maybe you look at your life and you see, man, I've got this sin in my life. I've got this stuff in my life that's not honoring to God. There's no way he could use me. There's no way he'd want to use me. He'd really be be more okay if I just got out of the way. You need to realize this morning, if God can use a man like Paul, then God can use you. As long as you are breathing, you are not disqualified from God's service. Now, if you have sinned in significant ways, there may be certain positions or ministries in the church that for right now you need to not participate in, but that doesn't change the fact God wants to still use you somehow right now to do great things in this world for Jesus Christ. There is no believer still living who is outside the reach of God's grace. God wants to use every one of us to do great things for his kingdom because God loves to use broken and unworthy people to turn the world upside down. Now, the really great news is God loves to use broken and unworthy people, but he doesn't love to leave us there. He doesn't leave us there. He transforms us, and that leads us to the third and final piece of Paul's life 
that proves the truthfulness of the gospel. In Paul, we see a former enemy of Jesus Christ who is transformed into a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Look with me at the end of chapter 1 of Galatians, starting in verse 22. Paul says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. You know, there's a lot of things in this world that can improve us. I can go get an education and improve my mind. I can go exercise and improve my body. I can go make friends and improve my happiness in life. All those things can improve me, but they can't transform me. At the end of the day, I'm I'm still the same person. I'm just a little smarter, a little fitter, a little happier, but there's nothing really transformative that's happened in me. There's actually only one thing in this world that can transform us, that can turn us around 180 degrees, that can make us a new person, and that is the grace of God. Look at Paul's life, for example. Do you notice Paul's life was not improved? Paul didn't get a little bit better. He didn't get a little bit nicer. He didn't become a little bit more gracious of a person. He didn't become a little less hostile to the church. No, Paul went from the guy who's killing Christians, who's persecuting those who hold to the gospel, to the foremost preacher of the gospel. That's, that's complete change. That's 180. You can't change more than that. That's complete 180 degree transformation. From the beginning of Paul's life to the end of his life. When he goes from before the gospel to the end of the gospel, he is completely transformed. He goes from the guy who's trying to put Christians to death to the guy who is willing to die himself for the sake of Christ. That is radical transformation. That proves to us that the gospel isn't made up. It's not man-made. It's it's not man-made because it doesn't make man-made size changes in our life. It makes God-sized changes. Make supernatural changes. Paul's transformation was not natural. It wasn't a little bit of improvement. It was supernatural. It was radical, 180 degree, going the other way transformation that God worked in Paul's life. You look at Paul's life and the only way to explain it, the only way you can explain how the fiercest enemy of the church becomes the greatest advocate and supporter of the church who even gives his life for the cause of Christ, the only way you can explain that is if the gospel is true. I think one of the best defenses of Christianity is to look at the early people who shared it with us, the apostles. Look at what happened to their lives. A lot of people think, well, these guys, they made it up. You know, Jesus said some of the stuff that he said, but then these men went and made a religion out of it to make themselves look good. Well, what happened to these guys for their beliefs? Almost all of them died as martyrs. They willingly died in horrible ways because of their faith. Only one got out of martyrdom. That was the Apostle John. He was imprisoned and we think he was boiled in oil for his faith. Hmm, not getting off easy, is he? No, one of the greatest proofs of the truthfulness of the gospel is that these men were utterly transformed into followers of Christ who were willing to walk with Jesus Christ all the way to the cross and die for their testimony. That's incredible transformation. That proves to us the truth of the gospel. We look at Paul's life, but that's not the only place we have to go. I'm sure all of us, whether in our own lives or the lives of friends, have people that we can look at and see the supernatural work of God in them. When I was living in Virginia, I was privileged to have a roommate, a guy named Craig, a great guy. Now, before I moved to Virginia, a few years before, uh, Craig lived a pretty rough life. 
Craig had no ambition in life. He had no direction. He did not study. He did not work. Craig was often drunk and often stoned. But that wasn't at all the guy I moved in with. The guy I lived with was incredibly godly. The guy I lived with had great drive in life. He wanted passionately to to glorify Jesus Christ. So he worked hard every morning at Starbucks so he could put himself through Bible college. The guy I lived with loved God's word. He passionately studied God's word. He lived an outwardly clean life. He was seeking to honor God in everything he did. He was a bold witness of the gospel. He loved to share what he knew of God with everyone who would listen. What had happened? Well, a few years before I showed up, Craig heard the gospel. Somebody looked at Craig, a guy who probably all of us would have written off, lost cause, a stoner, man, he's beyond hope of the gospel. Somebody saw Craig and said, that's a guy who's not beyond the reach of the gospel. They shared the gospel with Craig, and a few years later, Craig is absolutely transformed. He is 180 degrees different than the man he used to be. God did not clean up Craig's life. He did not sanitize Craig's life. He transformed Craig's life. I have a feeling that if some of Craig's old friends from his stoner days would have seen him as a believer, they would have hardly recognized him. His life was that transformed. Paul and Craig are proof to me that the gospel wasn't made up, that the gospel is true, that the gospel carries a supernatural power of God that can transform the worst of sinners into the most faithful of saints. I think what Paul is telling us here, he tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the gospel doesn't just improve you. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. When the gospel gets hold of you, it doesn't just improve you. It doesn't just change you a little bit. It recreates you. You become a new person, a transformed person. God's grace completely transforms the worst of sinners. That's what Paul's life proves to us. But I want to ask you, do you really believe that? The passage tells us that, but do you really believe that the grace of God can transform the worst of sinners? Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that God's grace can transform every area of your life? Or is there perhaps some, some area of your life, some area of sin that you have been so beaten down with for years, that you have given into so many times that now you've just given up hope. Man, God can't change this. This sin is unavoidable. I just gotta live with it. Or maybe there's some broken relationship in your life that you just think is beyond the hope of God's grace. Maybe over the last few years, your marriage has really hit a rocky place. You've hurt each other so much that you've just kinda, just kinda gotten to where you're ready to give up on it. Man, we're, we're beyond hope. It's so broken, it's so hurt. What you need to realize is Paul's telling you this morning, there is no part of your life that is beyond the transformative power of God's grace. There is no sin that you are so addicted to that God can't change you and free you from that sin. There is no relationship you have with spouse or parent or child or friend that is so broken that God can't redeem it and heal it through the transformative power of his grace. Men didn't make up the gospel didn't make up the grace of God. It carries the supernatural power of God that can transform all of us completely. If the grace of God can work for Paul, if it can transform a man as bad as Paul into a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, then it can transform us too. None of us are beyond the power of the gospel. When you add it up, when you look at Paul's life, 
I think he gives us, in my opinion, conclusive proof. The gospel wasn't made up. It is the good news given to us from God that carries God's supernatural power. The gospel is true. That's the only way to explain what happened in Paul's life. That this worst of all sinners is saved. That this most unworthy man is chosen for a privileged position and used to turn the world upside down. That this horrible, fierce enemy of the church is transformed into a faithful follower of Jesus Christ who gives up his own life. The only way I can explain that is if the gospel's true. That's the only way to explain it. The message that we share with people is the one and only gospel. It's given from God, it's perfectly true, and it's infinitely powerful to save and to transform us. We know it from looking at Paul's life, and we know it from looking at our own lives. And that really leads me to the application I have for us this morning. Last week, I challenged you to memorize the points of the gospel just so you feel confident, so you can go out there and share the gospel with people. This week, I want you to do, do a second thing in preparing to share the gospel. I want you to prepare to share your testimony. Your your testimony is basically your story of God's grace at work in your life. It's, It's basically what Paul gave us. The story of God's supernatural grace saving you and using you and transforming you. Now, you could share a very long version. Sometimes you'll have the opportunity to do that. You can share for an hour. But often you just get a little blip few minutes on the bus or around the coffee cooler or somewhere like that. You you get just a few minutes to share your gospel. So I want you to share your testimony. I want you to to prepare a three-minute version of your testimony this week. Really, I'd ask you guys, during some quiet time this week, or maybe you're riding in your car, driving to work or to school, please take a few minutes to think through and prepare your own three-minute testimony. Now, it may be helpful to write it out. You can do that. I have written mine out and have it saved on my computer so I can review it and just make sure that I, I know what are the key points I want to communicate. In any testimony, you're trying to communicate three things. Life before the gospel, how you came to believe the gospel, and life after the gospel. So before gospel after. That's what we we have from Paul. That's what we want to do in our own lives. Now, some of you will work on your gospel and you'll realize you don't have much of a before. That's, that's me. I, I don't have much of a before. I, I came to believe in the gospel when I was four years old. And, you know, it used to really bug me in some ways that that was true because I'd hear these awesome testimonies like Craig's testimony. I'd think, dang, that's a cool testimony. And I'd feel a little jealous. I, I had no before. I heard the gospel. I believed it. And my life was kind of uphill from there. One day I was complaining to Craig as we were sitting in our apartment in Virginia and Craig got mad. Craig pulled me aside and he looked at me in the eyes and he said, Blake, don't you ever complain about that again. You you want to talk about the grace of God. God spared you from all of the pain and suffering and destruction I caused myself and others. You are infinitely graced. That reminded me, not having a before is incredibly gracious. God protected me. He rescued me from an early age. That may be many of you in this room. You came to believe in Jesus Christ at an early age. That's an awesome testimony. That is proof that God has always been protecting you and watching over you and providing for you. So whether you've got a huge before or a small before, this week, I'm serious, I want you guys to prepare your testimony. If you're sitting on the bus, if you're sitting around at work and somebody asks you about your story, about who you are, are you ready to share life before the gospel, the gospel, and then life after the gospel? The beautiful thing about a testimony is that no one can argue with it. 
You want to defend the gospel to someone, so you spout out a bunch of theology. Well, they can argue with your theology. You spout out a bunch of apologetics. Well, they can argue with your apologetics. But then you tell them about what God has done in your life. They can't argue with that. They couldn't argue with Paul's testimony. The whole world knew how God took the worst opponent of the church and turned him into the foremost preacher of the gospel. His life was out there and no one could argue with that. How do you argue with what God had done? Your testimony is powerful. It's perhaps the best proof you have of the truth of the gospel. So be ready to share it when you meet someone. Let's turn to God. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we do thank you for the power of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. We thank you so much that out of all the gospels that are around in this world, all the the ways that people say that we can be made right with you, thank you that you have declared that you have made us right through your son. Thank you that it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus did. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. I pray, Lord, that all of us would believe that the gospel is not only true, but that it is supernaturally powerful, that it can reach every person on this planet, that it can transform them into faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Help us to believe that your grace can use any of us to turn this world upside down for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the power of your grace, Lord. Help us to not only believe it, but to share it with others. I pray for all of us. Please, Lord, convict us through your spirit. Help us work in us this week to prepare our testimonies. And I pray for every single person in this room, including myself, Lord. Please, this semester, as we go through Galatians, give us someone, Lord, who we can share our testimony with. Someone who doesn't yet know you. Give us an opportunity to share with them the story of your grace in our lives. I pray that all of it would lead to your glory and to the growth of your church. Thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.